for Oblivion, a history podcast hosted by myself, Callum Howell. Yep, and I'm Scott Hunter. And today we're going to be talking about ancient Mesopotamia. Yes, the agricultural revolution <laughs> and the emergence of the first city-states. Last week we're in Iraq, and as we we're promised, we still we're still in Iraq, but we've gone back uh, several thousand years to the very uh, dawn. About 6,000 years. 6,000 years. To, to the dawn of civilization, or have we? Was well, that one question we're going to counter today? What... I mean, it probably is. Scott. Yeah, probably. But specifically, what is civilization, and, and is it uh, how... really all that's cracked up? To is it all that's cracked up to be, and is it really worth studying? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. And this guy doesn't know either. The main book we're studying today is going to be called Against the Grain by James C. Scott. Yeah. Though, of course, we have uh, read a few other books for this. Yes, uh... definitely. Uh, and you know what, Callum? In order to make this podcast even more niche than it already is, I'm just going to quickly complain about a specific library in London. That's it. Yeah, no. So I went to, um, I reopened my Senate House membership uh, in London, Senate House of the University of London Library. And I thought, alumni, uh, I went to the LSE, don't you know? I'm a LSE alumni, KCO alumni. I thought at least it would be like free to get it. I thought all the money I paid in, 70 quid I paid, 70 quid for three months worth. I know. I tried getting my uh, LSE alumni card yeah. for the LSE library, but I had to show up on a weekday. Oh my Specifically God. between nine to five. You, you, so, <laughs> you know what? Exactly um, designed to keep me out of it. You know what? Um, with your LSE card, it's free. I'm sorry, listener. With your LSE card, it's free, um, and you can borrow up to four books. KCO, you've got to pay sixty quid for borrowing privileges. Jesus um, I do, I do get JSTOR though with, oh, uh, no. with oh. KCO and Senate House as well. So that's uh, JSTOR and uh, QQuest, I think. Anyway, uh, okay. so that uh, the life of a London historian. Okay, now they're all gone. All right. <laughs> so, um, Callum. Yeah. So you chose this topic, huh? uh, and I thought it was quite interesting because it's way out of our comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of what the earliest thing yeah. that I actually studied um, at the LSE was. Yeah. Um, like properly. I did. Uh, I did some early modern. I did some 18th century. Yeah. So the 1700s. Yeah. Versus early and as we and I mean, at, you know, in A levels, which was. Um, I was going to say in high school, but I don't know why I'm trying to make it accessible to Americans now. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, when I was doing my A-levels, I um, I did some ancient Roman stuff, and I did some more ancient stuff. Um, but, you know, not since, you know, my early history education have I really done anything. And, yeah, the LSE, um where we went, does pretty much early modern onwards. It does... Um, I don't think there's a course... Especially... Very recent history. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I think um, I think they had a course on the slave trade while we were there. It was um, it was slavery through the ages. Mm. So that one did go a few thousand years back, but I think it was that was like the first couple of weeks. Yeah, so yeah. You, um, yeah, you focus on the transatlantic. But yeah, so this is way out of our comfort zones, going way way back to ancient history. So why did you decide to choose this one? It was a combination of a couple of things. First of all, as you say, it was something that was. Uh, completely unrelated to what we had studied before. I wanted to take the opportunity to take a look at something new. And also, particularly, I had read this book, um, which I greatly enjoyed, uh, which is what going to be the main focus of our discussion yeah. today. Uh, Against the Grain by James C. Scott. I don't know why I chose a book which has the... Uh, written by a guy who has the last name as my co-host, which is going to make <laughs> yeah. rather difficult. Yeah. Yeah, James C. Scott uh, made a big splash in the political science scene a few years back with a, a history book called Seeing Like a State, which was an account of essentially modernizing programs in places like the Soviet Union and elsewhere, 
attempts to revamp governance and economy, and why these failed, uh, failed usually horrifically, uh, failed to improve the human condition, as the subtitle says. Yeah. And as he wrote this new book on the emergence of the first political entities in the Fertile Crescent and elsewhere, I felt it was quite interesting because I had a certain number of crossovers there with the very recent contemporary history that yeah. we've done. Yep, so um, this is considered this a sort of illustration of our historian approaches an unfamiliar area. Uh-huh. Uh, I um, looked at some books to read. You, you, you recommended some bibliographies because you'd, um, you've seen a bit more than me. Yeah. I uh, paid my 70 quid to turn it house and I went about getting some books. So, um, so yeah, I've read, we've read some introductory stuff, some general histories. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the main differences is, you know, last week we did maybe a 25 year period of history. Mm-hmm. And in the modern, modern era, we're used to doing, you know, decades, maybe a couple of centuries. But a lot of the histories that I was reading of uh, this period, you know, focus on millennia. You know, yeah. I, the, the first book I read was, uh, History of Ancient Near East, 3000 BC to 25 BC. Yeah. You know, um, uh, by the by, uh, I'll just mention here, whenever we mention dates here, we're, we're, it's going to be BC or BCE, depending on your preference, you know. It's, what, uh, what committed Christians got? <laughs> of course. I mean, this modern secular book. Whatever. I, for, I know, um, people use BC or BC. I don't care, personally, yeah. but, um, mainly because we've only ever worked in the last few hundred years, so it's never been relevant to us. But whatever. Assume it's before the year zero. But what it, so basically, yeah, we're talking about like millennia long. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a problem. It's kind sure of a problem. We'll a problem well, it's, we get into, but. It was problems that I've seen kind of addressed in some of the literature because, you know, you have the main danger is that either you think of the ancient world and specifically the ancient kind of Mesopotamia, which we're talking about, as either too homogenous, mm. you know, you think of it in terms of just this, um, this thousand year long set of general trends. But if you get too detailed, you kind of lose the overall picture. Because, um, and as well, because we're coming at it as kind of, um, just uh, enthusiastic graduates who are, are approaching a new field. Obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of deep research, and you can probably read an article just about some cuneiform manuscripts that would be incomprehensible to us. I think it's worth saying that having us babble on about our background is not as irrelevant as it might seem, because whenever you're doing history, the way you approach it varies yeah. massively uh, from time period to time period because of the sources that you have available and the method in which you have to work. Yeah, I mean, history is in some respects a reflection of a historian and without getting too postmodern it does matter the way that you approach things and um and especially it's not just us it's talking about kind of how how big a time period you talk about mm. and how that affects you how you look at history mm. is kind of a major a major deal yeah like i don't know if it's a problem in terms of our understanding but i know that you were saying earlier and i definitely felt it myself how skeptical we are about a lot of the conjectures about, that have been made yeah but, but but that's also just to a large extent that the fact that in ancient history the standards of evidence are necessarily lower different. because yeah. we have so much less information yeah. available but importantly you know you shouldn't think that there was less diversity or less variation of culture or ways of living in the ancient world than today. I mean, the people of ancient Mesopotamia lived in so many different cultures, more really more different cultures than we see today, because each individual settlement uh, where there were settlements, you know, they developed um, their own cultures, own languages, incredibly varied ways of living, you know, and people, um, yeah, there was so much diversity in the ancient world that you shouldn't forget when you when you talk about this. I mean, moving on to discuss the kind of what we're actually working with directly. Yeah. I guess the big obvious difference is archaeology is being a thing even in the first place. The fact that 
our understanding has to be mediated through this technical yes. method of uh, uh, yes, and, and archaeology is of course a whole discipline in itself, mm. uh, and it really features a lot. Especially, so the reason why most histories of this period start with the third millennium. Um, is because that's the period in which writing started to develop in Mesopotamia and across the world as um, a method of record keeping. And as such, that if you, you know, history from prehistory is kind of an arbitrary distinction, but if you ask most people, I'd probably say it's, uh, it's writing. But yeah, um, looking at um, how people lived before that, and of course during that period as well, is archaeology is incredibly important. But it is uh, interesting to say, you know, last week we were talking about Iraq, and when we were talking about our sources for that one, the idea of a, a state-centered history, yeah, because we're working mostly from state records. Yeah, that, we still have that problem all the way back here because, as we'll discuss, writing was invented yeah. as a means of of helping administration. Yeah, and the earliest writing that we have is things like accounts, yeah. and, and you know, receipts, order, and uh, uh, yeah. of orders, laws, things like that. And and that's really what against the grain is kind of arguing about. Yeah. Um, but what what is interesting? One interesting commonality I see between um, what we we're talking about last week and this week is in both cases there's still a lot that we don't know and a lot that we're probably going to learn mm. in um, in the 2003 Iraq case uh, because obviously there's a lot of sealed documents that we're not privy to. But in um, in this case there's a lot of archaeological evidence that we we haven't touched. Um, of course. Doing archaeological research in the uh, Mesopotamia right now in Iraq is uh, <laughs> quite difficult for a number of reasons um, and has been difficult for a number of years. years. Um, and as such, you know, there are there's a lot of archaeological evidence which we aren't pretty. Mean, it was a lot easier back in the good old days of imperialism. But is it, I mean, uh, I don't want to get too yes. sidetracked talking about that, but I mean, yeah. in many ways, that's but, uh, how archaeology gets started. Yeah. Oh, well, um, my point is, you know, um, when you look at the, the ancient big cities like um, Uruk or etc., we've only really scratched the surface, uh, literally the surface, because it's all buried, um, <laughs> in, in terms of what we know. But yeah, archaeology is a big deal, and studying... Um, digging, finding where people lived, the size of the settlements they lived in, um, their kind of tools, their remnants of things they left behind. You know, really, um, and archaeology in that sense leads us to a very sort of, I want to say like, effect first version of history in the fact of you find how things changed and the patterns of change across years and you don't really know why they changed. You're just kind of left to um, conjecture, infer or conjecture or look at what certain things are happening. Um, can I go on my devil rim pots rant? <laughs> uh, no, I don't, there's one, there, there's one thing I also wanted to discuss, um, related to how sort of ancient histories differ. There was, this came up, we were discussing it earlier, this idea that ancient historians of the ancient period is, are more literary. <laughs> yes, in a way uh... that, in a way that we disliked. <laughs> but in a sense, is, I, I'm quite, trying to think of how to express this. A kind of crossover with literary criticism almost. Yeah, in a way. But the reason for that is, when we're discussing the cultural artifacts of this period, you know, things like the Epic of Gilgamesh, yeah. etc. These are very important in trying to reconstruct how they saw the world, yeah. how, uh, people from this far back, which is a very difficult process since it's such a different cultural yeah. frame of reference. I think this that seems a bit wanky to us insofar yeah. as we have like one one myth or one yeah. document, and from this we try to reconstruct yeah. an entire worldview. Well, I, I but, think, yeah, I, you, go, you go on. Yeah, but I don't think that's necessarily a, yeah. a bad thing. As we say, it's a kind of a necessity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's important to note we only have 
we don't even have necessarily the most popular or relevant stuff. Like the Epic of Gilgamesh, we don't know whether that was the most popular work in its time. We we, we only it's know that survived. it survived. It's it is what survived. Um, in terms of historians who write, uh, maybe I do you know what I mean when I say there's a certain stereotype about ancient historians. I'm yeah, thinking yeah. of mustachioed kind of old British men who are... Uh, They're all trying to be Edward Gibbon. <laughs> yes, indeed. And they want to... Um, whereas uh, the modern historian, I find, I think is definitely the cool end of oh, the history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel like there's a an old colonial uh, kind of stereotype for an ancient historian. Someone who's trying to write their own little epic. Mm. Uh, whereas because we, you were reading this book, you read it to me, of something like um, ah, the, the ancient state was much like a spitfire measurement. Yeah, the spitfire of the 19th century BCE. Uh, and imagine if you read a book that was like, oh yes, the Nazi safe apparatus was much like a Ferrari GT5. <laughs> <laughs> you, you wouldn't see that kind of that kind of phrasing, would you? <laughs> In a modern history volume. Oh, shit, I broke Godwin's law. I invoked that. Uh, that was just... I wasn't comparing any ancient history to, um, to, God, to the Nazis. I just used it as an example. <laughs> All right, Scott. Beveled rimballs. Oh, fucking, fucking, fucking beveled rimballs. Look, I don't want to shit talk about areas of history, but when your entire profession rests on this fucking type of bowl. So, alright. So one, this is an interesting example, actually. I'm going to use this, not just to rant, but to talk about an example of using archaeology to aid historical knowledge. Because a big deal in this period is the beveled rimball, which is uh, what it sounds like. If you don't know what what beveled means, it means a shallow bowl with like a wide rim around yes, it. Uh, a ball that was... Uh, these balls were essentially mass-produced yeah. in the early Mesopotamian Ar- city-states. Ar- around probably 3,500 BC? Yeah, we, they start appearing. They start appearing massively in the archaeological record. They're one of the most common kind of artifacts that we yeah. find. They were probably used to distribute foods yeah. to labourers. And, and the beveled rim bolt is a big deal. And, um, look... If your profession revolves around a fucking bowl, I'm well, sorry, that's not very exciting. Look, the reason why the bowls come up, though, is because they're uh, simple and they were obviously mass-produced. Yes. And because they're ceramic, they're very durable. Yeah. And they survive in massive quantities. Yeah. So the point is that there is a shift around the mid-third millennium between producing very um, high, highly decorated, um, elaborate bowls and ceramics to, produce, to mass-producing a very simple but durable and effective mm. ceramic. Um, and we and we know that these beveled rim bowls were made by master craftsmen as well. We know that they, because they have marks on them, mm. They we, we know that they were coming out of these kind of workshops, I suppose. So, you know, it, was, um, it wasn't a matter of being low quantity, it was just a matter of being simple. But the point is, yeah, it's often called, it's often called, um, you know, the ancient industrial revolution, in the sense of you have this big shift towards mass it's production. It's a shift away from sort of, artisanal production. Yeah. Because, of course, manufacturing has always been a thing to an extent. Yeah. Even hunter-gatherers yeah. have to make, you know, bows or spears mm. or whatever. And to a certain extent, in these very early agricultural communities before the rise of big cities, they have yeah. to make furniture and things like that as well. Yeah. But the quality of craftsmanship that you get there is actually quite high, yeah. ironically. And it's when civilization appears people begin to move in cities and you have social stratification yeah. emerging for the first time. That's when you have this division yeah. between luxury products so, and uh, yeah. consumer yeah. So, So it's by it's by finding all these bowls and looking at them and their markings and so on and how they've been made that we've been able to like 
make this these conjectures, these conclusions um, around what they might have been used for and what they might tell us about society at the time. Because not only was, was it a stratification, but obviously there's suddenly a big demand for ceramics. And not just ceramics, but ceramics made by someone else. Because that's kind of a big factor of living in cities, is that you... Division of labour. Division of labour, yeah. Okay, so um, we've talked about some of our sources. So mm. Let's talk about um, what was actually happening in the general sort of timeline in the period. Um, and the conventional sort of points so, of view. Uh, we were also going to briefly discuss the agricultural revolution mm. in a more general sense, though of course, in, in its most important mm. parts, that's what is, occurs first in ancient Mesopotamia. So, I mean, modern humans have existed for, I believe, about half a million years or so. Something. Um, well, okay. The it, earliest it, ancestor, mean, Homo erectus, there's, there's no appears. Singular, there's no singular point at which you could point to yeah. a modern um, human. Ho- ho- Homo but, sapiens sapiens yeah. appears about between twelve and 30,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, but, you know, ho- modern, as in Homo erectus, is about 500,000 yeah. years old. So, yeah, it's kind of within the last half million years, uh, what we might recognisably call, you know, um, Homo, as in... Um, man, yeah, uh, or humankind. I don't want to say man. Actually, that's so stupid. Uh, uh, if if I may be an SJW for a moment, that's kind uh, of an outdated phrasing. I mean, human humankind has kind of existed. Yeah. So, and for most of that, people have lived in hunter gatherer band societies. Yeah, practicing uh, obviously, as we say, hunting, gathering, fishing, and as we move on, small scale farming as well. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the agricultural revolution, we're not just talking about the emergence of farming, we're really talking about the shift to farming as an exclusive way of life. Yes, and staying in one place farming as yes. well, because um, this is something that Jing Squat says in Against the Grain, is that um, prior to sort of the agricultural revolutions you might call it, people would um, stay, they would stay and farm for a season, and then yeah. move on. It's This is something that will, yeah, I'll go into it now. The reason for this is that the way in which you practice agriculture can vary massively on depending on the way you want to go about it. Mm-hmm. If you're sort of a hunter-gatherer society, the easiest way of farming is what's known as swiddling. I I see it more commonly referred to as slash-and-burn agriculture. And the way that works is you go into a patch of forest and you burn it down, essentially, and reduce everything so all of the nutrients that contained in the trees and everything are returned to the soil. And that gives you this very sort of rich topsoil that you can use to farm for a period of maybe like um, less than 10 years. And then you have to move on. But this is very efficient in terms of the labour and the capital involved because you have this very uh, nutrient-rich topsoil, though it gets exhausted very quickly. Also, all of these new shoots come up from the undergrowth, which attracts animals and things like that. So it's a very efficient way of going about things. The problem is it's very intensive in terms of land. But obviously, in a world which doesn't have many human beings in it, that's not really a problem. So when we're talking about the agricultural revolution, what we're really talking about is the emergence of fixed-field agriculture. Fixed-field agriculture, where you stay in one place... And you, re- and you repeatedly farm the same soil yeah. over and over again, mostly. But when we're discussing the shift, the obvious question is, why? Yeah, well... But the problem <laughs> is that the obvious answer to that, and what was mm. assumed, I guess, for most of yeah. history, is that, well, it simply must have been yeah. the best option, a but, functional explanation. Yeah, but before we get into that, what we know, before we know why, is we know that this sort of fixed-place agriculture first started to become popular in Mesopotamia, yeah. in sort of the third, fourth millennium-ish. Maybe a bit earlier. A bit earlier than that. Than that. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd definitely say it was earlier than that. Um, yeah, it, yes. It, what's kind of important here is 
this sort of the overall discussion of the development of civilization and what yeah. is counts as yes. progress. Because I think for a long period, historians assumed that there was this sort of linear progression as society became more advanced, where you start off with hunter-gatherers yeah. who would then move on to farming, and that increase in population allowed them to form cities, yeah. which then allowed them to form city-states yeah. and then uh, empires, etc. I mean, et we've, all, we've all played the game Civilization. Yes, very and, much. And that, that is the model that you see represented in a game like that. But I think people have looked at this more closely, and certainly in the past, I don't know, maybe 30 years or yeah. so, certain problems have emerged with this narrative. I mean, the most obvious one is chronological, and it's mm. come out of archaeology, and that's that as we become better at discovering the signs of human activity, yeah. it's become clear that, first of all, people start to live in cities before they even start to farm. Yeah. It's actually cities come first, ironically, and it's yeah. simply a product of uh, population yeah. density and surplus. Yeah. So the first cities actually, I believe, they discovered places in like Turkey that have existed yeah. about 10,000 years yeah. ago almost. So predating wide-scale farming by some degree. Yeah. And then the second part is that um, even when people farm, sometimes they don't live in cities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and sometimes cities um, get big and then just like get more sparse. Mm. They, they, they lose population for reasons... Um, because like um, Uruk is an example of this. So yeah. in the third millennium, you have a big city in southern Mesopotamia called Uruk, uh, mm. which is like one of one of the big boys, one of the big cities, and it was uh, grew in size all across that millennium. But then it just started to kind of lose population, mm. and I think a lot of historians traditionally have gone through like some sort of theory of sort of cataclysm or yeah. something happened, conquest, something happened to render it um, less attractive. But sometimes for reasons that are that we can't figure out, people just sometimes will stop living in cities. But I think the biggest problem with agriculture is when you actually examine the archaeological yeah. record and what the lives of early agriculturalists would yeah. have been like, it's not exactly obvious why someone would choose to yeah. live in that way. I, I mean, this is something James Scott brings up. Yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. But this is something, so talking about against the grain a little, yeah. uh, James Scott brings this up, and he brings it up in quite a self-congratulatory way, uh, although I've seen it in other books, other yeah. earlier books. Um, yeah, agricultural life was not that great. Hunter-gathering hunt was pretty good, especially in Mesopotamia. Yeah, essentially, so living in a hunter-gatherer society is actually a relatively efficient way to uh, to live, it seems, yeah. in terms of the actual amount of labour that you're putting yeah. into it. Especially when you... work long hours yeah. of the day. I mean, it depends on where you live. But, but even in places like the Arctic, yeah. you know, Inuit peoples had yeah. a very large energy surplus because they hunted yeah. whales, which is a very efficient way of going about things. Yes. And so... Of... The problem is, you move from, say, being an Inuit and you've got a great diet because you live off of Wales, yeah. and then you suddenly decide to be a farmer in Mesopotamia, <laughs> and then suddenly you get a whole lot shorter, <laughs> you've got rickets, because your diet is so much less diverse. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that's another thing, less diversity, and, in, and really, less adaptability, because if you're, if you're a farmer and your crop fails, you're kind of fucked, uh, yeah. whereas if you're a hunter-gathering, you just sort of move elsewhere. So concentrating your wealth in, like, your material wealth in one place doesn't seem like such a great idea. Mm. And not only that, but living in one place also brings together a whole load of other related problems. Like, the biggest one, I think, is disease, and mm. disease is something that we'll return to later. But disease is not something that really afflicts hunter-gatherer societies, or mm. would not have in the period before the development of these sort of densely packed populations, mm. simply because... They didn't have the population density for contagious diseases to sort of spread continuously. Mm. It might go through a single tribe or something like that, mm. but that's where it stops simply because yeah. they're too spread too, too sparse, far apart. Yeah. Spread too far apart. 
And moreover, there are also related factors that increase the incidence of the disease in these sedentary communities. Yeah. The big one being the domestication of animals. Mm -hmm. When you're living closer to animals, which you really didn't do if you were a hunter-gatherer, yeah. you can catch diseases from the animals themselves. Those animals also bring pests like fleas, mm -hmm. which you could also catch diseases from. When you're living in one place, you suddenly have to deal with vermin because you'll start to attract things like uh, rats, mice, yeah. sparrows, things like that. So, yeah. So to talk about um, Against the Grain... Um, and James Scott's arguments. So the principle, one of the first arguments he makes, being he objects to this general sort of cultural notion that we have in, in that ancient historians have had, that agriculture is some necessary step yeah. on this kind of ladder of civilization. That, that, um, that ancient people necessarily organized in agricultural groups and city groups because it was a better way to live. Yeah. Um, and the second thing he talks about is um he James Scott in a rather grandiose way attempts to construct what he calls a species history. Um, by that he means he attempts to um look at the history of the ancient um area, ancient Mesopotamia, from and really the ancient world in, in yeah. as well, but specifically in Mesopotamia, from the perspective of basically everyone, not just the people who organise into cities, because we know. Uh, and it seems it seems almost tautological, but we do know that a whole lot of people for these millennia were not living in cities or were not yeah. living agricultural life. They were um, what what um, some of you might have called barbarians in the sense that well, they the point, were. The point is, we talk about the agricultural revolution is so everyone was living in these hunter gatherer yeah. bands, and then suddenly everybody decides to start yeah. farming. But in reality, most people are still living in those kinds of societies. Yeah, continuing in past the death of Christ. Yeah. Past up until the first millennium, maybe I, even I mean, up into the fifteen. I mean, James Scott says um, he says sixteen hundred yeah. AD, doesn't he? Um, because um, I suppose that's uh, that's when people get to, or that's when Europeans get to South America and yeah. um, and murder all the all the Incas and I mean, Aztecs. And... I, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but yeah. that, that, it does that date does have kind of some significance insofar as. The invention of gunpowder is what finally turns the tide between the battle of sedentary and non-sedentary peoples. Yeah. It's, you know, we're going to talk about this more later, about how the relationship between non-state peoples and state yeah. peoples is kind of dialectical. It goes back and forth, yeah. and they start to become affected by each other. Yeah. But in the end, obviously, as we all know, sedentary society <laughs> won out. But there, it doesn't really turn decisively in favour right yeah. up until the 1600s, yeah. which, of course... You can see easily see like the Mongols, Huns, or various forms as just a continuation yeah. of these sort of earlier, yeah, and quote unquote barbarian. But, but we but we have this idea of uh, this kind of um, civilization even trending towards ever more developed and um, bureaucratized and city uh, ever more um, urban landscapes. Mm. But uh, that's not necessarily the case. So, what did you think of James Scott's book? What did I think of it? Yeah. I thought it was very interesting yeah. and thought provoking. But also very conjectural. Um, yeah. That's, that's why I wanted to talk about it, was to yeah. take a look at the wider literature and see to what extent it corroborated it. Yeah. So so James Scott seems to have... I get the picture from his writing. I don't know anything about the, the historian himself, but I get the sense from his writing he has this idea of himself as kind of the bad boy of the ancient history world. He, he's, not a he's not a specialist in ancient history. Okay, he's not a specialist. He's uh, more of a political scientist okay. focusing on yeah. agrarian studies. Okay, so he kind of comes into it. Uh, you can tell from sort of the tone of his writing, he has this idea idea of I'm going to um I'll ignore the plane going over. I'm going to like turn and turn things on their head and all these old professors aren't even gonna know what's happening. Yeah. But what what he's really done is he's taken 
Um, a lot of arguments which have been around for the last, at least for the last couple of decades in, um, in the ancient history world. And he's kind of brought them together yeah. into this thesis of what he calls species history. Hmm. Uh, which, and he acknowledges this, uh, right in the book. It's kind of very difficult to have a history of people who didn't write anything down hmm. and didn't live in one place. So they didn't leave yeah. Much permanent archaeological evidence, you know, but m- most of what we know about these um, non-sedentary peoples comes from what's written down. Re- written in, down in, in by the, the sedentary <laughs> yes, people exactly. who they were fighting with. Yes. And, so, uh, <laughs> successively either being enslaved by yeah. or trying to enslave. So, um, and a lot of it, you know, as you said, he's not a specialist in ancient history, but um, a lot of his um, book comes down to pointing out this idea. Yeah, that we we have gaps in the historiography, but obviously it's very difficult to close those gaps. Mm. So, what do you think? Do you think species history is possible? Uh, I think that what he was trying to do is, like I said, he comes from more of a political science background, yeah. and so he's less interested in examining the details rather than to construct these sort of broad, yeah. theoretical arguments, which I find uh, very interesting. But it's also not kind of not what we do. So yeah, I mean, uh, at university, you know, I had this debate um, again and again with people mm. of uh, of grand narrative versus um, basically detail specific histories, and it's um this is actually this book um it ties in in a lot of ways to general debates in the historical profession mm. within the last um sort of fifty or so years because a lot of people uh, in the nineteenth century especially and in the early twentieth century. Grand, grand narrative history was a big deal, mm. especially amongst the sort of English, um, prof- like <clears throat> academic class, this yeah. idea. I mean, I'm thinking specifically Edward Gibbons a bit before, um, even that, but you know, Edward Gibbons' big rise and fall of Roman Empire yeah. or people writing, um, big histories of empires, you know, um, r- uh, big grand narratives of, um, you know, it's very detailed. Success and very yeah. focused on the story um, itself. Um, and since about 1960, that's kind of got less and less uh, important. In the academic profession, in, the, in, popular, history, in popular history, popular it's still, history is still oh, like definitely, very, very yeah. Um, I mean, that's. I mean, as we said, Scott, in our, at the beginning yeah. of our last episode, uh, that's kind of what we're trying to do ourselves yeah. is move away from yeah. that in the, in the podcasting sphere. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and you get a lot of, occasionally you'll get some think piece written by some, um, tired old academic who's saying, um, ah, oh, historians don't write, uh, oh, history is so irrelevant. History, yeah. uh, p- historians don't write for people anymore. We need more grand narratives to get people interested in history. It's so, it's so niche. Um, <laughs> so and you can tell by the whiny mock voice I'm doing, yeah. but I don't really think much about, I think, Okay, I think that there is a space for narrative in history, and certainly you've got to have something to get you interested. But also, also th- you can't do it without details. No, you can't. Do- we have to talk about what actually happens. We can't just I, speak I, out of our asses. Yeah, I, I always think as historians, it's important that we don't lose sight of the fundamental process of trying to uncover bits about the past. Yeah, like I think there's um narrative can be important, but it's more important. To make sure that you get um, get get it right, or get or there's no right necessarily, but get it um, that you do your legwork. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, I and I think I'm I'm personally of the opinion, um, and this is to digress a bit, but there's no uninteresting part of history, and there's no part of history that's not what worth studying, even the fucking even the Bel- you know what, even the Belgian pots from Spain, uh, because someone someone's interested, <laughs> someone ha- loves those pots. 
And I'm I'm happy that there's a historian out there who has a poster of a beveled rim pot on their wall uh, and um, and loves their pots. Um, but yeah, so I just think um, I I kind of am inherently sort of suspicious of anyone coming from outside the historical profession and saying they're going to shake up the yeah. status quo by putting back in the grand narrative. Mm. Um, even though we do have that, and um, as, as we were saying... I, I think that Scott was trying to move away from the grand narrative. You think so? Okay. I, well, though, he's, because he's moving it towards an analytical yeah. sort of uh, account of the past mm. rather than a purely descriptive one. Okay. Perhaps moving, moving a bit too far in that moving direction, in my opinion, but... Okay, um, I, I how, do you, how do you think? I mean, I felt he could have just used more details in attempting to substantiate yeah. what he was yeah. saying. And obviously, I, I appreciate he's going for a sort of overall picture, and he's making um, kind of general arguments about um, about how we might have missed details in history. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I, I think there are elements of his analysis which are um, which are quite strong mm. in the sense of I, I like I do agree that. It sometimes is even helpful just to realise that there is a blank spot in your vision, mm. and sometimes you need a book to tell to kind of argue that we have, even as we try and become you know more and more sort of sceptical of things, that we still are influenced by this nineteenth century idea of grand narrative. But my, my worry is, I think that you're a bit being a bit harsh on him insofar okay. as you got him caught up in his like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be the big bad okay. boy, bring in because. Uh, uh, to talk about his politics, he he's kind of a anarchist sympathizer, yeah. which you clearly tell from the book. Okay, but I think that the analytical points he's making in their specifics are actually very interesting yeah. and very provocative okay. in terms of what he's arguing is how these this uh, political society as we understand it, these centralized states are based on a particular form of life yeah. that has to be created in the first place. And it's only mm. created under very specific conditions. Yeah. And then he elaborates on what those conditions are yeah. and why he thinks they might have come about. Yeah. And I think that that aspect of what he's yeah. doing is fascinating yeah. and deserves to be talked okay. about. That's more important. Okay. But <laughs> I think we should finally get, go back to the discussion of why the agricultural revolution happens. Because we talked about why the agricultural revolution shouldn't have happened. Yeah. But obviously it did happen. Okay. So this is something that people are kind of cagey about talking about because obviously they can't tell it directly from the yeah. historical record. They have to infer it. Mm-hmm. And I think that what Scott... He doesn't even talk about himself that much. And we're talking about James C. Scott. <laughs> yeah, James C. Scott talks <laughs> about me. is He thinks that people were essentially forced into it probably by ecological catastrophe. Yeah. So in the particular instance of Mesopotamia, early Mesopotamia, before the rise of the city-states, mm-hmm. was extremely lush, much yeah. more a much more hospitable environment than Iraq was today, uh, which, I mean, Iraq has basically continuously gotten worse and worse in yeah. terms of its environment over the past, like, 6,000 years ago. So ago. It was a extremely lush wetland. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't really have to dig irrigation canals or anything like yeah. that. But, rich in, you know, uh, hunting, rich in fishing, things yeah. like that. Well, keep in mind, um, even today, and especially in the past, um, the Middle East... An incredibly varied environment. Yeah. People are, um, yeah, there's a, it's not just there's a massive desert. Yeah, so people have this view of a uh, massive desert, but actually, that, that area of the world, incredibly varied. What seems to have happened is, is as the environment got drier, as we moved further and further away from the ice ages, essentially that environment collapsed, that very lush environment in which these hunter-gatherer peoples were living. Mm. And because they had this in large population, because the food sources have been so plentiful, they had to move towards fixed-field agriculture. And the one advantage that fixed field agriculture really has over this combination of hunting, gathering, and swindling mm. is that it scales with labor. Because swindling is great, but it only works for a small number of people, whereas fixed field agriculture, you can feed a large number of people mm-hmm. 
in a very small space. You've got to work them really hard, but you can do it. And so there's this idea that as the environment got worse and worse, people became trapped in these sort of ever-worsening conditions and they were forced into yeah. this sort of inferior mode of production to survive. And, yeah, you, um, so you go on, yeah. because you don't have to see... But once they're there, they're yeah. trapped there, is the point, yes. because otherwise they would face mass starvation. And, and you can see the, um, the sort of uh, anarchist sort of philosophy there of people, you know, naturally free are kind of trapped in uh, the well, specification. I, I think that it has some advantages over that kind of lapsarian narrative that you find in, a, yeah. in an anarchist or even a Marxist account of, yeah. of communism, insofar as it's not a count of evil yeah. on the part of a particular yeah. a group that wants to achieve dominance or something like yeah. that. It's simply a ver- it's a contingent historical yeah. circumstance, yeah. which I think is an interesting argument to make. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, and I think um, you know we we can only um, conjecture to a limited extent on why people might have um, you know formed cities, but I think uh, I think James Scott does have uh, an interesting point of view, and uh, certainly he he goes so far. A lot of the people I read didn't really advance any sort of reasoning. They were just said, well, this happened. Yeah. Um, we can't. And I think James Scott does, um, is quite in, quite brave in a way to try and, try and explain it. Yeah. I mean, and you're opening a, yourself up to, whenever you're and, advancing a positive yeah. argument, you're always yeah. opening yourself up and, to criticism. And hey, it's got, but I mean, it interested us enough yeah. to do this episode on it. So yeah. And I think, um, I think he, he backs up his reasoning, um, quite well. He's definitely, he's an articulate writer. Yeah. Um, he is, yeah. Even if he has some wanky phrases. Even if he has some wanky phrases. The Domus <laughs> Complex. The Grain, the Manpower yeah. Module. Mm. Uh, so do you have anything to add about why you think that the agricultural revolution actually happened? Uh, why why do I, in my expert opinion, yeah. why do I think... Or have uh, you come across anything in the reading? Um... No, I... See, I'm... I'm always moved to sort of more caution. I'm moved to kind of, um... It, I think there is a... A particular set of reasoning as to why it happened in Mesopotamia. Yeah. Because, uh, because as, as we said, um, agriculture is kind of rubbish mm. to, to live in, but there are advantages to doing it as well. Yeah. Um, there is, um, there's a certain, um, traditional sort of ideas of, um, yeah, it, it, of, um, the idea of division of labor, I think, is not that unattractive, mm. uh, to living. But then again, that's living in cities as opposed to living in agriculture. I can see, um, a set of rationale given the environment as to why people might have chosen to organise themselves in a way that um, can yeah, produce you, food you, on a large scale. Yeah, you, you use the word choose. To what yeah. extent is that ever appropriate is that to, ever? to discuss these wide... Okay. Yeah, that's true. Well, this is something that does get brought up in a lot of the reading, is when you're talking about a thousand years, five hundred years, yeah. um, to what extent do individual actions cease to matter? And what extent is it just shaped by the land? Uh, this, so this is... Um, this sort of school of history is part of, um, is, I guess, a end point, end sort of consequence of a early 20th century school of French history called it's, the Annals. It's Annal. not just the Annals school, it's yeah. the entire shift in history, you know, Marxist historiography yeah. as well is drawing on the same sh- progress, which is after we move out of the yeah. 19th century and the emergence yeah. of history as a, as a codified profession. Yeah. And there's this shift towards, away from the traditional yeah. narrative focus. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's true, and I think I think the land of Mesopotamia is especially important. Like, I, I do agree with the the long term perspective of sort of the land shapes how people act in it, mm. and that um, the particular um, confluence of um, env- environments mm. in sort of that area of the world 
Um, but it, it's not movies. just uh, in that area of the world. I think it's interesting to make a comparison to ancient Egypt. Yeah. If we're talking about ecological catastrophe, we can also talk about uh, the desert- the creation of the Sahara. Yeah. It's not just um, the Middle East. Yeah. It's the entire Sahara Desert is also a recent creation throughout yeah. the past 6,000 years. Yeah. And the, the drying out there, and you can talk mm. about that in yeah. relation to the emergence of that's true. Uh, agriculture yeah. in Egypt. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an, that's an interesting comparison. I think that is... Uh, but the, the, I mean, the problem that I have is that explains uh, yeah. the Sahara. De- that explains Egypt and Mesopotamia. It doesn't explain uh, China. <laughs> China yeah. And, I mean, I think something similar might have happened in China. but yeah. I'm not too, don't know too sure. That definitely doesn't explain Mesoamerica. No, as far as but I'm but then but then you get into the area of um, of detail though, yeah. and you have to you know you're you're never going to be able to come up. I think it's kind of impossible to come up with a unifying theory for all all of humanity around the world. Uh, no, um, because there are there are multiple sets of reasons why people might be driven into um, an agricultural way of life uh, or choose to do an agricultural way of life. And I don't think I think it's kind of a um, a lost cause to try and think of. There's one set of circumstances that's true for everyone. You know, we can only look at um, specific areas of the world. And I think I think Mesopotamia and Egypt is a uh, you know, is a area in and of, in and of themselves. Okay, so um, we kind of covered. We had a few questions to cover. We wanted to cover why ancient Mesopotamia and why did the agricultural revolution happen? And we've kind of touched on both of them. Yeah. Because um, but do you have anything else to say on like why Mesopotamia? Uh, no. I, yeah. I quite like to move on to discuss uh, what Mesopotamia was actually like now. Though. Yeah, sure. So how did the Mesopotamians organize themselves? And we said uh, socially and uh, politically. Socially and politically. I mean, I, I'd like to start off by discussing, um, it, it follows on quite naturally from the discussion of the agricultural revolution, yeah. but the sort of economic basis of Mesopotamian yeah. society, because Scott has this very interesting, James C. Scott has this very, <laughs> uh, Grain Boy, we'll call him. Grain, Grain Boy, Boy, all right. <laughs> uh, James C. Scott has this very interesting argument about uh, specifically the emergence of what he calls sort of grain states, where the <clears throat> main focus, the main source of food for these societies was Wheat, barley, and in other parts of the world, also rice and mm. maize in the New World. And similar to this question of why did the agricultural revolution happen, is it simply because wheat and barley are better in some way than these mm. other sources of food, or is it for some other reason? And Scott's argument is that these particular sources of food were, I th- he doesn't exactly say why, were sort of maybe forced or induced upon early societies precisely because they were conducive to the development of centralized political society mm. in itself in the first place. And what he means by this is that if you want to run a state, it has two essential characteristics, and those are soldiers and tax collectors, who are by their nature mm. not productive. They don't grow food, <laughs> right? And so the problem is any kind of stratified society yeah. like this requires a surplus to be produced, a surplus which can then be extracted from mm. those at the bottom yeah. of society, and then used to feed the structure which then self-perpetuates. Yeah, And Grain has certain characteristics as a vegetable mm. that is particularly conducive. Grain is not a vegetable. Sorry, grain is a, a cereal. I am, as a food, <laughs> sorry, as a food source, a grain is particularly yeah. conducive to this kind of society. Yeah. And the reason for this is you need to be able to collect taxes, as we say. Yeah. If you want to be able to collect taxes, you have to be able to assess them mm. easily. Yeah. You have to be able to collect them easily. Yeah. Yeah. And basically. Nobody wants to pay taxes, yeah. So you have to be able to not have the peasantry, yeah, uh, hide their hide their <laughs> food from you, yeah. And so grain is has a particular combination of traits that makes it especially yeah. useful. 
first of all, it all ripens at the same time. Yeah. And so that means you don't have to have people constantly watching farmers yeah. to see when they're, they're going to grow their food. Yeah. You just get to go, you just send all of your tax collectors out yeah. at the same time in autumn, and then you take a fifth or however much of yeah. you want. It also <clears throat> has to be collected at that particular time. Things like potatoes, other kinds of tubers, they can yeah. just be left in the ground. Yeah. So you can't have a potato state, it has to be yeah. grain. Yeah. And so this combination of traits makes wheat, barley, rice as well. Really the only yeah. combination of food sources that you could actually base a state on in the first place. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, um, that, that is, that's an interesting um, argument, I think, uh, for saying why grain. Uh, but I think um, in some ways you're kind of starting a few steps down the path. Because before you have tax collectors, you have to have infrastructure to justify taxes. And before, like, because why do you collect taxes in the first? Why do you organise society politically in the first place? Uh, doesn't it? Doesn't it come from the need to um, build infrastructure for for things like irrigation? Well, that's that's the, that's the classical argument. That's yeah. the argument that people yeah, are, used to make. I think the problem is: is this what we see when we look at the details? I mean, the first problem mm. is how useful is actually is irrigation in the first place? Yeah, because in early farming society. In Mesopotamia, yeah. you didn't need irrigation uh, in because the, uh, the water yeah. level was higher. Yes, in the, in the earliest farming societies, yeah. Yeah, in, in the earliest. Uh, okay. And the silt hadn't built up enough. Yeah. And it's not exactly clear that... Shit. Sure. Okay, take your time. Actually, am I going to argue this? I'm not sure. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, sorry. Scott, what's the point you were making? But, so, the irrigation point... is... that the, that government emerges out of a collective need. Yeah, for, the need to for, deal with collective for problems. Some, yeah, yes, for some sort of, um, you know, j- j- that sort of um, argument from James Scott, it kind of starts on the... Scott argues against that, though. Um, does he? Yes, he does. Specifically, Sorry, yeah, specifically, he's the one who argues that irrigation right. isn't necessary for early agriculture. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and I think my, my point is um, James Scott starts out with this premise that taxes are being collected for something. Yes. Um, and he doesn't... He doesn't identify a source from which that early tax collection um, infrastructure emerges. But, I mean, are you assuming that these sort of power structures emerge out of the need to deal with the collective problem, or do they emerge for their own sake? No, do they? That's the thing. That's what I'm not convinced by. I'm not convinced. I think when you're. If you want to structure this argument of. of people being basically coerced into eating yeah. into the grain state, into you, eating grain. you need some sort of justification for why these structures have emerged in the first place. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Is that's the thing that he doesn't talk about very yeah. much. He hints towards it when he mentions that the early city states of Mesopotamia, their names, um, like Ur, Uruk, yeah. these are not Sumerian names. Yeah. We don't exactly know their linguistic origin, but we know that they're not Sumerian in yeah. origin. And so I think there's this va- there's some vague idea in there yeah. that they were in some sense imposed by these yeah. for- by some kind of foreign conquest. Yeah. Like I'm I'm see I'm open to the idea that um power structures impose agriculture on people. Yeah. But I think he's kind of arrived at that without a basis for why those power structures well, have emerged think- other than this idea that um power structures will emerge and impose for their own sake. I think it might be interesting here to examine in more detail, the actual political structures during this early period. Yeah. I guess we're talking about the period here from between about 4,000 to 3,000. Yeah. Which actually doesn't come up very much in the literature, but it's actually very interesting if you look at the details of what society was like in that period. Yeah. Because this is the period in which the first city-states actually emerge, mm-hmm. First centrally organised yeah. polities. And 
essentially, as far as we can tell, they were basically theocracies. They yeah. were centrally organized around the temple. And what's particularly interesting is that they actually had a very centralized yeah. political and economic apparatus. They were essentially almost largely state-run yeah. economies. Yeah. Well, the, the traditional argument is is that you get the temple, and then later on you get kind of the palace. The, yeah, palace, the monarchy, as of military as regions. a yeah, as, uh, that comes from a need to have a set balance of power between temple and. Well, that's the thing is. In this early temple-based society, yeah. as we say, things were very heavily organized yeah. by the temple itself. The temple was the major landowner, yeah. the major manufacturer yeah. in society, yeah. and the major employer. Yeah, like and, and private ownership of property doesn't really come along until later. Yeah, probably not until around 3000. Yeah. So, in this sense, and as far as we can tell, this is where we see the emergence of the beveled from bulls, but also it's not a society in which we see a great deal of social stratification. So, so it's what we're saying, Callum, our ideal communist society is, um, like, everyone is... They replace the church with, like, a nice, like, um, atheist, yeah. uh, collectivized. Everyone is walking around in white jumpsuits, drinking from beveled rim bowls, <laughs> <laughs> and eating grain. <laughs> well, my point, the point I was trying to make is... If we want to make talk about the emerge this emergence of a sort of functional, yeah, the functional argument does come first, yeah, where you have these relatively egalitarian yeah. societies that are focused around these sort of theocratic yeah. city states, and it's then once that earlier order collapses, but the city order comes back with yeah. the emergence of secular military-based yeah. political rulers and the emergence of private property. Is yeah. that when we see? Sort of domination come back. Yeah, or is it, that too? No, uh, hmm. it's a, it's a, um, it's a tough one because I think no, it's so um, it's general. It's over such a long period. It's over. Yes, it's very, it's very convenient to James Watt's political prejudices to assume. Uh, Scott doesn't really talk about this that much. Okay. This is an inference I'm making from the further literature. Okay, um, it's just. Um, I think neither of these, neither the kind of traditionalist school of thought that's emerged in the past few decades, nor kind of Scott's um, thesis, really has um, that much to back it up. Yeah. You know, it's it is over a, going through a course of so long and with such a um, big blind spots of evidence mm. that it really is difficult to tell. You know, um, you could you could see it either way, and I think uh, I think ultimately for me. Um, James Scott's argument in this case is interesting, mm. but kind of a bit flimsy in the sense of, you know, he's he's kind of going forward with a kind of big assumption, uh, almost for a purpose of sort of um, counteracting traditional narrative. Mm. So, but I mean, the traditional narrative I don't think presents very much in terms of why city states would emerge in the first no. place. No, 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 no. Ancient historian, I I've seen actually. Almost kind of so cautious that they don't really argue any cause. Yeah, um, yeah and, and as we said earlier, I think um, James Scott is at least brave enough yeah. to make a positive argument. A lot of the literature just um, doesn't dare to do so. So I, I just don't think Scott's argument was completely convincing for me. Okay. As we say, we have the very first city-states that emerged around the period 4000 to 3000 BC were these highly sort of centrally organized, but also very simple uh, in terms of their overall social mm. structure, theocratic societies. And then there was, I think, the first of our sort of interim periods. Yeah. And this is a consistent theme 
that Scott brings up it again and again, which is essentially state collapse and why mm. this occurs. Yeah. So these early societies had a period of trouble, mm. and these occur for various reasons. I think the big one that he tries to argue for is disease. Yeah. Disease is a recurring factor, mm. as we say, it's a new factor in human history yeah. that, as he tries to argue, or something that com- kind of comes up again and again. It's an overriding factor in human history, but one that's sometimes actually yeah. not considered very much, insofar as it's this new thing that comes up with the rise of civilization, becomes a major factor in sort of social history, economic yeah. history, up until, I think, until the pharmaceutical revolution mm. in like the 1920s. And, yeah. sort of, and then disease kind of drops out again almost. Where we have. Well, you know, in things, some areas of the world. In some areas of the world. We have, you know, things like the Black Death and the Plague of yeah. Antonine, Plague of Justinian. All of these are sort of have the power to sort of destroy empires, but are often, I think, kind of ignored simply because they're not human factors in history. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but also, is... what Scott. Uh, actually, no, sorry. I think we need to move on to. Um, so the reemergence of you, the... You think so? Okay. Yeah, I mean, we can have more time if we you... We talk you... about Sargon. Oh my god. Um, okay. So, Sa- Sargon was not always a popular fascist YouTuber. Um, <laughs> at one point, Sargon of Akkad was a real king. A real king. <laughs> and I... in this... As we say, there was... Once we see sort of political society reemerge, it has a very different uh, frame to the earlier... Yeah. Sort of um, fourth millennium... Yeah. Society. One that's more focused around... The emergence of City. these sort of, yeah. well, I've seen the literature referred to as not kings, but big men. The <laughs> idea of, no, but particular yeah. individual sec- secularly based mm. rulers, although maybe with divine characteristics, yeah. but also particular individuals. Really. Yeah. And so, I mean, do we think that that shift to w- away from those earlier theocratic societies is important? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of defining power structures, yeah, um, yeah I think of a shift towards a secular monarchy is inc- incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not really. I don't really want to advance theory of why it happened, though. I think that is so complex. Yeah, uh, it's kind of beyond the time that we have. Uh, but I definitely think it, it's the start of um of real state structures. Um, yeah, it, and, and this is the point where I would um I would agree with this idea of imposed from above. Yeah. state structure. And the reason why Sargon comes into this is Sargon is the first person that we are aware of who was able to found a true territorial empire. Yeah. So Sargon was not just dominant over his uh, the city that he established, yeah. Akkad, but also he managed to expand and his dominion over most of the sort of uh, Mesopotamian plain, which is important in itself because now we have the power to extend administration beyond the walls of the city itself. Yeah. This is something that Scott, I think, brings out quite nicely in his mm. book, which is essentially how small these city-states are mm. in terms of their territorial extent. They're maybe only talking 20, 30 miles out. Yeah. In so far, because the means of maintaining your control beyond that is essentially it's, impossible with these sort with of the infrastructure methods. they have. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, um, I think in a way, that sort of the, the Akkadian period and um, those modes of these early territorial states are really when everything, everything that we think we know um, and the traditional methods of history really start to come into focus, mm. and we can start talking about causes, and um, yeah. and the records are much more easily defined than um, than this earlier fourth millennium history, mm. and 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 that's the point where I'm sort of more on board mm-hmm. uh, with these kind of arguments. But yeah, it's um because in a way infrastructure kind of builds itself from there, um, as the state needs more needs more resources to extend its infrastructure to feed more resources. Yeah. So um uh, do you want to talk a bit about uh social structure? Uh, or, or do you, or do you... well when I was talking when I put social structure on there, what I yeah. mostly meant was 
Scott's argument essentially around sort of population control. Yeah. And early states as these sort of population machines. Mm-hmm. Because as we said, the territorial extent of these early states was not very large. Because they had an inability to really control um, territory a few, more than a couple of days travel outside of the walls of the city itself. This is interesting insofar as it kind of links back to what we were arguing about earlier, where we move from this society which has an abundance of land, and so you have slash and burn agriculture, into one where you have a large population, and that population is what's necessary. And so what he's... Scott's argument is essentially how labor and the control of labor becomes mm. the essential feature of political power, yeah. really. And so what he means by this is once we have the grain state established, mm-hmm. uh, where you have this extractive economy, where you have a state on top, which extracts its yeah. essential means of sustaining itself from the farmers, the power of that state is based on how many farmers it can accumulate, yeah. and also other forms of labourers as well, mm. but most importantly farmers, in order to provide the resources that it needs to sustain yeah. itself. And that has a number of important um, implications. Hmm. So the first thing is, you need to, you need a lot of people, yes. and you need to get them by any means necessary. Yeah. Which means, well, it can mean slavery, it, it, yeah, it, it can mean population transfer. Yeah. Uh, however, you're also fighting against a number of factors. The first problem is, as we've mentioned, disease. And the more people you cram yeah, in, more the more disease, disease you have. Yes. The other problem is, is apparently people don't like to farm, as we mentioned earlier. <laughs> and they sucks. might run away. Yeah. Especially if they're slaves. So you need to stop them from running away. You need away. to stop them from running away. Mm. And so, Scott's argument is that these states sort of emerge and develop by yeah. developing more and more efficient means of controlling the yeah. population and, and con- controlling the populations under their control yeah. and expanding their and, and also you have these elements of collaboration as well because uh, you know in a in a sort of um an early farm if you've just got like a village that farms yeah. or you've got um a hunter gatherer society that farms sometimes you know you won't you don't spend all your day working on the farms you know mm-hmm. and in an individual family or a village would perform a variety of tasks so you're not only doing farms but you're um you're making everything that you need etc etc but when you have a like institutionalized intensive farming as a profession mm. your all your farmers work on the farms all the time mm. so they, you need someone else to make clothes you need someone to make your um, bed, um pots or beveled room pots you need you need you have that all these structures play in to the specialization of labor which we see mm. um, from living in these cities which had already gone on um but you know even more so when you um you have a state which is actively like pushing a selective industry mm. so you get you get um and then the state as well to maintain its control requires an element of collaboration with certain classes so it's in the state's interest to create um a stratified society mm. we also see an emerging relationship here with the non-state peoples as yes. we discussed earlier the so-called barbarians yeah. because on the one hand the city state is not self-sufficient it needs yeah. resources which cannot be obtained from close by things yeah. like fuel yeah um, pretty much anything that you would find in like, yeah. the forest. So things like if you want luxury goods like yeah. honey or gemstones yeah. or ores, anything like that has to be traded for. Yeah. And so you have, and of course you need to trade with that with the non-state peoples because they're the people that live in those kinds of yeah. environments. On the other hand, you now have this surplus for the first time, really. Yeah. And so that surplus is available for the non-state <laughs> peoples to come and take. Yeah. Especially because they're more mobile than you are. You know, if you yeah. want to go and try and find them, you've got to go out and yeah. just move around. But all of your surplus is stored in these yeah. nice granaries where they can easily come yes. and take it. On the other hand, 
Those non-state peoples are also nice to have around because you might go and enslave them, or you might pay them to enslave each other. Yes. So, um, yeah, you have the first um, first organized conflicts, the mm. first uh, proxy wars, the first all the all the things that we know and love today. Mm. Uh, you have emerging in this period. Um, yeah. So I think that. Um, do you have any any other comments to make? Well, I really think it's interesting about this is, as I say, Scott's. Uh, the work that really brought them onto the map, seeing like a state, was talking about recent history and attempts on the part of states to uh, modernize, develop society, yeah. and why they failed. And it's hard not to see the connection here with his arguments that these early states are characterized by a kind of incipient totalitarianism, <laughs> which is very provocative and interesting. Mm. Scott, what do you think of that? Well, the state, states are characterized by incipient totalitarianism. No, no, the, uh, the, well, these early oh. states at least. Um, I think it's a. Uh, I mean, I think it's an argument that has merit because you in these earlier states, what uh, what sort of checks do you have on power? Uh, basically, none. You know that we can tell. Um, you know, I, I think um, the essential idea that a state organizes itself within the best interest of ruling classes yeah. is um, definitely has lay, definitely is sort of um, born out in these yeah. uh, in these early states. Yeah, and. Um, I'm not quite sure whether he's trying to go for some uh, pseudo-Marxist uh, kind of class conflict, revolution is inevitable. Uh, uh, no, but that's the point. It's not really a, a Marxist account yeah. in terms of... Or at least that's not the important argument yeah. that he's making, that these are just class societies yeah. reflecting the interests of the ruling classes. The interesting part of his argument is this idea of the preconditions of power. Yeah. That in order to have a particular way of life, what kind of... Mm. Society, do you need below that in order to sustain it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and is that inherently totalitarian? Well, that's what he's arguing. Is that argument. yeah? Is that these early states required this heavily regulated form of yeah. society, and simply in order to keep themselves going? Yeah, and that's why that's why he thinks they're so fragile. Is precisely yeah. because at the slightest moment, that entire system can easily break apart, and yeah. then suddenly everybody's running off of the farms back into the hills. Yeah, and I mean. <laughs> You know, I probably agree with him. Yeah, um, yeah. at that point, I, I definitely think. Um, I mean, something isn't... that isn't brought up is how fragile these early states were. You know, somebody yeah. remarks that was it uh, Sargon of Akkad's empire lasted for a hundred years, and this is considered a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, because um, you know, you know what, it survived. What... To, it survived to his grandson, which was apparently <laughs> a, a very yeah. rare. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do if um, something awful happens? What do you, if 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 your infrastructure is destroyed by catastrophe. Mm. What what can you do? Um, some a, you know, a lot of the time, um, damage your infrastructure was just beyond repair. Or yeah, you but didn't it's not have the that. physical damage the infrastructure yeah. is pointing out. It's this the damage to the overall system that supports yeah. the state in a social sense. Beyond yeah, that. but is, isn't that kind of one of the same? Like, uh, sorry, sorry, I said like catastrophe, disaster, but um, I did mean sort of it, He's talking physical about the human and social damage. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. All of your slaves. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, well, he, was, he, he bangs on about slavery, but it's not yeah. obvious that slavery was necessarily a massive. No, it was no, society. no. It but but then you get into kind of um, 
you know, um, distinction for being a form, formal slavery servitude. and indentured servitude. And yeah, and, and, and really, if you're a ostensibly free man, but you have no choice but yeah. to work in the field, to what extent are you free, you know? Yeah. But no, I, I do understand what you're saying. Sorry, I'm kind of uh, stumbling over my words a bit. But I understand what you're saying in terms of frigidity. And I do basically agree. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, a lot of these empires came and went. There were a lot of, I mean, there was initially a lot of land. Yeah. And um um a lot of space to sort of uh, carve out if you uh, carve out an empire. Um but you know, most of them were most of them didn't have legs because um well as as we were saying, like constructing these institutions was was a difficult business and I know I it, all it took was a little like social or physical damage. Hmm. And it, yeah, you didn't um it sorry, um something yeah, um, a, li- a few um, a few things go wrong, mm. and it would all fall in on itself. And yeah, I agree with him. Yeah, I mean, as we sort of move even further on, this sort of trend of more and more centralization and yeah. ever more efficient state institutions yeah. is definitely a continuing trend because it starts off with these. It starts off basically with Saga of Akkad's yeah. empire, which, as we say, lasts. Uh, his grandson, it didn't last until his grandson, it lasted until a bit after, because yeah. his grandson was also a very famous ruler, Naram Sin. Uh, and then um, the Akkadian state was evaded by yeah. people called the Gutians, yeah. uh, who destroyed that, and had, there's a sort of period of anarchy for yeah. about 90 years. And then we have the old Babylonian Empire, yeah. and that lasts a little bit longer, and then yeah. Assyria, and that lasts a little yeah. bit longer, then Neo-Babylon, Neo-Syria, yeah. things like that. But, and as time goes on, they become more and more efficient, more yeah. and more stable. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I um, I'm not sure it's something that James Scott says explicitly in his book, but I think it's kind of worth an interesting thing worth noting. Like you say, like the general trend is towards more larger and more efficient states, yeah. and that is um true in the sense of um they did emerge, but for most states, the the end result was this collapse and uh, yeah, disorder. They, they collapse, but the people, you know, it's interesting. Why is it that they collapse, but they always come back stronger? Like, I guess the point. <laughs> uh, well, is it a case of sort of um, the strong, um, the because, strongest yeah, tend to survive? Well, that's the thing. It's not yeah, they obviously the case of the strongest yeah. tend to survive because the there's this interim period, and then yeah, but it's not that the new city state, the new dynasty, is the one that overthrew the previous yeah. one. There's usually like an interim period, and mm. then a new state emerges yeah. out of that kind of chaos. Yeah. So it's not direct succession, is yeah. the point. No, that's true. But um, it, I think it comes down to... I mean, I can conjecture. Yeah. Um, you know, it comes down to some things that we can't necessarily know. But may, it, it's possible that, um, you know, knowledge was passed down through yeah. oral tradition, um, that people learnt in some ways from from mistakes and so on. And, you know, um, as states collapsed, uh, not necessarily everything went away. People, yeah. people learnt lessons from those times. Mm. And, yeah... Um, uh, especially with technological innovation as well, you know, people mm. people preserve that. But yeah, um, as for why the general trend exists of um more more efficient um, states, yeah. I don't know. I couldn't say. But it's a uh, yeah, it's a well, it's a puzzle. I, sorry, that's kind of a quaint way to put it. Mm. But it's just um. Well, I, well, the the primary argument, uh, the traditional argument, is that's just how society tends. But I agree that's not satisfying. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think? Uh, 
Well, I guess it gets back to that the problem of the of that like functional sort of critical distinction. Was it that people just got better and better at solving their problems? <laughs> but is it clear to me that Sargon's empire is a worse method than Neo Assyria? <laughs> yeah, it's diff- It's very difficult to say. But I I think there there must be some continuation of um of knowledge or yeah. learning, you know, through oral tradition or in some cases writing. Well, I think. Yeah, but the thing is, Scott, you talk about it in terms of knowledge, but we're mm. we're talking about the practices of state making. Yeah, okay. Uh, we're talking yeah. about things like obviously the develop, like how efficient is your bureaucracy, yeah. uh, like how efficiently is your army organized, and things like I talk about how each empire that comes along is essentially just doing the thing that the old empire yeah. did, but better. Mm. Like we're talking about control of population, how you need yeah. to bring in more and more people. Yeah. Like the last of the great Mesopotamian kingdoms, the Neo Assyria. Yeah. No, it has uh, like a terrible reputation in history because because uh, of the Bible, basically. Yeah. Uh, Neo Assyria were the ones who invaded um, the northern kingdom of Israel and deported the northern yeah. ten tribes, the lost ten tribes of Israel. But that, when you take that in the perspective of James Scott, uh, James C. Scott's account of history, that makes sense. That uprooting of a population in order to bring them into your empire, so yeah. you can control them more properly, and then you can use them as yeah. farmers, things like that, makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, so in that sense, it's just a more, a larger scale version yeah. of what people have been doing before. Yeah. Is that something that's passed down through oral tradition? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, it, in some ways it's a, and I, I don't feel that qualified to quite comment on this, because this isn't my speciality. But this is but... what I'm talking about of this incipient totalitarianism. Yeah. It's comparing that to like population transfers in the Soviet Union or something yeah. like that. How do you organize? Yeah. Like, the needs of the state in terms of yeah. controlling its populations. As society just goes on, it just gets better and better. Yeah. Uh, see, I think, um, like, transferring, like, comparing across thousands of years yeah. is a very political science move. Yeah. That's not a very, hist- like, that's not a very, um, historicist move. Okay. Um, yeah, I know, I, I think, um, like, in, in some ways, there are, I was gonna say a set of best practices for population best control. <laughs> but, um, yeah, in, they they were states arising from the same sort of um set of priorities. Yeah. In a way. I can't really be more detailed than that though, I feel like. <laughs> because that any more requires like more a lot more specialist knowledge. Uh, as I've said my thoughts. I think the I think James Scott makes uh, some compelling arguments, especially on kind of a later later developments of states and so on. Um definitely an interesting read. Yeah. Would, uh, would you recommend it? I would recommend it. Uh yeah. I recommend that you read some other books on Mes- ancient Mesopotamia first. Yeah. I recommend you go get a library card and uh or you download some uh, you, go, <laughs> you go get your library card and you um you kind of read a few introductory volumes to mm. um to the general history of ancient Near East and then sort of uh and then you can kind of move on to um, something like against the grain. It's an interesting. It holds an interesting place in the historiography. Do you know anything about how the book's being received? Uh, that's Did a good read? question. I think uh, I saw I saw a couple of think pieces about yeah. it. Uh, mostly because uh, uh, Scott already has like a reputation. Yeah. Uh, in ter- in academic terms, actually, I have no idea though. Yeah. Something I should have taken a look at. Ah, uh, well, I can cut this bit out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think it's um. It's definitely an interesting read. I would say, uh, don't make it the end point of your research. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, I mean, always read more. That's the historian's sort of motto. There's always more you can read. But yeah, it's, uh, I'd recommend it if you are interested in the period. Yeah, no, I can go with that. I think, uh, 
I think if you're interested in kind of the distinction of how mm. historians and political scientists do things, I think our discussion, if the book in, in combination with our discussion here will make that quite our, clear. Our discussion is a central piece yeah. on, the, um, <laughs> yeah. on, on, on the argument, yeah. But yeah, definitely, he, he's using a different method to examine the same period, which can be valuable, Yeah, yeah. Uh, even if he is a political scientist. Oh, at least, Callum, he didn't study IR. <laughs> Inter- <laughs> international relations. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, that feeling when you pay twenty-seven thousand pounds for an international relations degree. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, we've had a had our little joke. That's not going to be the last joke. Rubbishing I are. So, um, so I have an idea for our next topic. Oh, right. um, so, Mark Callum, I'm going to say, how do you feel? Um, I will have a topic. Um, I want to do um, suffrage, women's suffrage in Britain, because we are at 1918. Uh, there's 2018, 100th anniversary, okay. more or less. But I think we, we can, we're going to talk about the, um, the radical suffrage movement of the early 20th century um, in comparison with a more moderate suffrage movement that went on before and alongside. And are you up for doing a little film review? Uh, I thought we could watch Suffragette. Uh, and all right, all right, all right, Scott. I, I said I said you could pick the topic for next week, but what I what I want to know is who died. Like, <laughs> what what wars were being thought? Well, what, 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 like what, who got genocided? That's that's but, the real question. Uh, the, the first world war happened. Look, if nobody dies, Scott, nobody's going to get interested. Okay. Okay. I, um, no, I I want to I want to do something about suffrage, and I want to uh, we're going to have a sit down and watch Suffragette, okay. and we're going to talk about how. Um, because this is another one in which the popular perceptions of the movement are kind of at odds with the historical, uh, the historical sort of consensus or the historical debate, and I want to smash the two together okay. by reading about suffrage and then watching and talking about how suffragette the film from 2013, 2014 mm-hmm. uh, engages with that historiography. Yeah, I think that'd be it. I'll definitely be up for that, Scott. Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you very much, Callum, for choosing the topic for this week. Right. It was certainly uh, very interesting, and thank you very... <laughs> no, it was really very interesting. I did mean to sound sincere. And thank you very much for listening at home. Oh, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Um, I've been Scott Hunter. And I've been Callum Howe. Uh, goodbye.